This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. afternoon good whatever time of day it is welcome to another episode of the do not listen to this podcast i am your host sam lacrosse can you dig it i can okay here we go so we got a lot of exciting things going on in the um i don't even know what this it's a lot of exciting things going on in the don't do this media atmosphere okay we're gonna rephrase this that so the do not do this atmosphere is a lot of there's a lot going on there's a lot going on. As you see, can see I sound flustered. I am flustered. It's just, you know, there's a lot going on. So first of all, I got to record this podcast. Got to record this podcast. And the reason I am choosing this specific post to go back to and revisit for this podcast is because it is because it has a very, very important role to play in what is coming in two days from now. So in two days from now, on June 28th, 2022, my book, Value Economics Study of Identity, is hitting digital shelves everywhere you look. It is going to be available for purchase online through Amazon, Barnes & Noble in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. Audiobook is coming later. We're in the process of recording it now. But in the meantime, it's going to be available on all mediums that you can buy books from, at least in the mainstream. There might be some black market shit going down. I don't really know the behind the scenes of the book industry. I know enough. I don't want to know anymore. So anyway, that is exciting stuff. And this post today, which is a factor, a large factor, it's actually a section in the upcoming book, Value Economics, Study of Identity, authored by yours truly, coming this Tuesday, June 28th, 2022. It plays a big role, and it is a big role in the foundational parts of the book. In the first couple chapters, it really, really plays a big role. I don't really talk a lot about the stuff inside of this post, specifically inside of the chapter, because it would just be too big, it would be too clunky, it really wouldn't flow with the structure of the rest of the book, at least in my opinion, it would not. But it plays a very, very important role, both in our lives and in our values. And I think that it would give you guys a nice teaser of what the book can do and what the book is going to do, I think, for a lot of people, which is hopefully help you guys discover your individual value system so you can help yourselves become better people and better human beings and interact better in the world. So, without further ado, a preview of my upcoming book in two days, The Value Economics Study of Identity, authored by Sam LaCrosse, June 28, 2022. Here we go. Kanye West really is something, isn't he? He's something to a lot of people. He's different things to a lot of other different people. 
And he was perhaps never more at his peak somethingness than when at the 2009 MTV VMA Awards, a moment that I personally remember as the first and still largest up until the Chris Rock, Will Smith slapping incident scandal of my lifetime. The moment where, in a moment of Hennessy-induced candor, he climbed on stage, how the fuck did security not stop him, I still don't know, during the Female Video of the Year presentation, grabbed the mic from then-breakout artist Taylor Swift, and delivered the most passive-aggressive compliment ever uttered on national television. Yo, Taylor, I'm really happy for you, I'm gonna let you finish, but Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time, of all time, and then he gets booed off stage, all the other stuff. It was utterly dumbfounding. And the reverb from the outburst was felt immediately. Beyonce, who later went on to win the crown jewel of the ceremony, Video of the Year for a song, Single Ladies, which Kanye West was protesting about, can be seen saying, quote, Oh Kanye, oh God, over and over again, from a position in the crowd. Swift broke down in hysterical tears after she left the stage. Beyonce soon followed suit. Kanye was later kicked out of the ceremony and hellaciously roasted by celebrities Janet Jackson, Katy Perry, Ryan Seacrest, and others. Then-President Barack Obama called him a, quote, jackass in a leaked interview. Then-Non-President Donald Trump called for a boycott. His tour with Lady Gaga was canceled in part because of the incident. You can make a valid claim that this is where pop culture memes went into the mainstream. Unfortunately, you could also make a valid claim, and I do, that we've seen more of these types of incidents since then, not fewer. While I don't think this is statistically quantifiable, all you can count one for sure with the Chris Rock Will Smith shit that happened, I definitely don't think it's far-fetched. What you can't argue, though, is that our culture has become significantly more emotionally charged than it has, at least in my lifetime. Irrational and inaccurate news headlines dominate our conversation and our consumption. Venues like social media are giving people more places to be heard than ever before. Hot takes are exchanged across debate stages, across different sections of culture, at pace of swigs that Ye took from that bottle of Henny. While a lot of factors are at play here, I think the second point in the above paragraph, or the above thing I just stated, I don't even know what that would be in this instance, has validity. There actually is data to prove this one courtesy of our friends John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, most prominently in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. The amount of microaggressions based on ever-increasing segments of intersectionality among demographics of young college students are increasing rapidly. A big conduit for this aggressive expansion, as the two men explain, is social media. Social media has made it more convenient than ever before to make us prone to these types of situations. I'm certainly not immune. I can remember on my first Twitter, before I deleted it, maybe I'll talk about that one day, getting into the, a 20-plus tweet fight with some egg profile picture guy about Tom Brady and Deflategate. Now, how fucking stupid is that shit? We all know it didn't have any impact in the outcome of the game, and, well, fuck, I did it again. So why do we succumb? Why do we relent to these mob tactics of attacking others and irrationally defending our stances instead of putting them under constant and constructive questioning? I think the answer can be nailed down to two factors. To understand this further, let's segue to a different but slightly less boring topic. A college course on investing, yay. Stay with me. I'm not going to bore you with things like betas and sharp ratios or some bullshit about diversification. That would have bored the hell out of me too and I majored in the shit. This course, however, was different in a great way. As part of my core curriculum for my major, I had to take this course as many people who major in finance go into financial services in some capacity, especially at the college that I went to. On the first day, I was expecting it to do typical of the stereotype who I've spared no expense roasting previously on this blog, podcast, and other mediums. Loud, obnoxious, way too expensive haircut, tells us five times minimum per class about how hot his wife is, how expensive his dinner last night was, etc. But what I got, however, was quite the opposite. 
This man came in wearing a pink Sam's Club brand Tommy Hilfiger polo. He has seven of them. His wife bought them all. Light blue washed dad jeans and a baseball cap. He was quiet but not meek. You would tell he was strong, wise, and a non-bullshitter. He was just as good of a listener as he was a talker. He kept it real. He didn't embellish. He was the man. The other facet of the class that made this man the man was the manner in which he taught. It was unorthodox for a college class, to say the least. Spoiler alert for all who haven't been exposed to this environment, a lot of the, quote, college experience when it comes to this kind of stuff is drastically overrated. A lot of professors just puke up the book on students without any personal touch whatsoever. This was not the case in this course at all, however. He didn't believe in theory as a practice. He believed in practice as practice. He encouraged open discussion, which a lot of the times led to disagreement. We talked about real life and brought in personal dilemmas to drive this home. This was not a class on theory. It was a class on how to become a good investor. And, believe it or not, being a good investor and a good liver of life are more related than one might think. There are trade-offs you must choose between in order to risk the best position or to position yourself best for success, rather. There are usually between risk and reward, which you do all the time in life from whether we take out a second mortgage on the house to whether we have enough time the next morning to arc train ourselves into oblivion to burn off a second piece of carrot cake. There are systems that have hierarchies and individuals that make up both. One must know how all three work in order to navigate them with success. Perhaps the greatest piece of wisdom that was infringed from this class was one of the man's, quote, golden rules for successful investing, which can also be applied to successful life living. In the man's view, two things are generally what gets people in trouble while investing, and they don't involve anything specifically related to investing. Ego and emotion. There is proof of of this everywhere. It's an incredibly accurate assessment. It can be attributed to Kanye's outbursts and several other outbursts. What the fuck does she know about cameras is my personal favorite. It can be attributed to most other outbursts stemming from intersectionality and microaggressions on Twitter and other social media. They're problems, but not because of their existence. They're problems because we as humans mostly suck at controlling them. And that is what we're here to discuss. When we can develop a habit around constructive use of ego and emotion, we can become better life livers. And in order to dissect this, we're going to be discussing both terms and their interrelation, our habits of falling into their traps, and how we can minimize our exposure to said traps. Just promise to not cut me off like Kanye. That shit's rude, folks. Joe Pesci doesn't get enough credit. Joe Pesci is perhaps the most underrated supporting actor to ever live. Sam Rockwell is also excellent, so he's up there too, but he's not as good in my opinion. You probably know him as Harry in the Home Alone movies or some angry Italian guy in a movie your dad has probably watched over 20 times. However, these aren't your typical God, Dad, again movies. These are some motherfucking great films, folks. Casino, The Irishman to a lesser degree, and Raging Bull are all works of art. However, there is one role that Pesci has occupied that most people hold as his magnum opus. The gangster genre holds a special place in my heart. They're filled to the brim with some of the worst of the worst society has to offer, crawling over each other like some Bible allegory in order to stay alive and prove dominance, usually with a lot of alcohol, blood, bullets, and various Italian meats involved. It's phenomenal. A film that emphasizes this genre perfectly is Goodfellas. It's not my personal favorite, but it's lauded, rightfully so, as arguably the best gangster film ever. 
as one of the top as well as one of the top 10 films ever created. Our friend Joe Pesci co-stars along with Ray Liotta, RIP, Robert De Niro and Lorraine Bracco as Tommy DeVito, a made man in a major New York mob family who is the major connect to Liotta and De Niro's smaller crime outfit to the bigger players in the industry. DeVito, like most Pesci characters, is highly volatile. He's prone to violent outbursts, says the words like fuck a lot, and is braggadocious to a fault. But before we get to Mr. DeVito, my girlfriend the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and I have some new words to show off. The definition of ego is, quote, the self, especially as contrasted with another self or the world, end quote. The definition of emotion is, quote, a conscious mental reaction subjectively experienced as strong feeling usually directed towards a specific object and typically a- accompanied by psychological and behavioral changes in the body, end quote. Ego and emotion are naturally interrelated, and that's what's causes, what causes most of the problems with both. They're a motherfucker of a combo, especially when you have a lack of self-discipline to keep them in line. In my estimation, ego and emotion are primarily attached to the hip in three ways. The first piece of evidence to their relation to one another is that they are both inherently insular and personal things. This is evident in the definition of both words. Your ego is always there. You are born with it, and you have one whether you want to admit it or not. It is the immaterial version of yourself that you hold for yourself, the perception of yourself that you hold within. Emotions, as well, are very personal. We all despise, fear, and love different things. They are the reception of our individual stimuli to the world in which we live and are involved in. We react differently towards different things. Excuse me. I hate snakes, and there are some fucking sick people that have them as pets. See how this works? This relation is important because when two things are in close proximity, their coexistence with with one another comes under a microscope. They either can work well as a team or try to rip each other's throats out. The only thing that can relatively control either is the person within whom they are based. You. If you can subvert your temptation to let your ego and emotion instantly gratify you, you will do well. If the combining perceptions of your both your ego and emotions affect how we see things, usually ourselves, in a way that does instantly gratify and control us, it can be very detrimental if left unchecked. The second piece of evidence to their relation to one another is that they both need each other to feed off and grow stronger. Like I mentioned before in the definition, ego is always there. No matter whether someone admits it or not, they have one. It's just a matter of how much, if at all, that they show it to the rest of the world. Your ego will stay just as it is. Until it doesn't. And that's where emotions come into play. Remember how these things are both perceptions? Well... Your emotions are perceptions of the world from an internal stimuli, your ego being one of them. If your emotions can find a way to heighten your ego, your ego will do everything in its power, when left unchecked, to grow. We are growth-based creatures, you see. We have constantly evolved over time, and we react to changes in our life quite often in order to better our situations and to make ourselves more comfortable. If your ego is room for this, it will take it. With the heightening of the ego, there also comes a heightening of emotional awareness. The reason for this is that the natural state of an elevated ego is to seek what elevated it in the first place. For example, if your ego feeds off of the validation from others, it is more natural to open up to others to validation in order order to continuously keep ascending to that higher state. This can lead to a vicious cycle, mostly in the cases where your ego feeds unconstrained off of things that are detrimental to your well-being. Like in the example with my investments professor, ego and emotion when combined can create a lethal combination to your strategy of investing. 
If we let the same thing infect our lives, which, as we've discussed, are more like investing than we realize, the results that can come can be disastrous. The third piece of evidence to their, of their relation to one another is that they both become adversarial to whenever outside things threaten them. In terms of both your ego and your emotions, they both act as natural defense mechanisms for your psyche. Your ego is your perception of who you are, and you don't like being threatened. When your ego is threatened, it lashes out and fights back against whatever is threatening it. Your emotions are reactions to outside stimuli that you internalize. If outside stimuli are perceived to be threatening, your emotions will react accordingly and defend themselves. So what to do? Those three reasons all seem like pretty compelling reasons as how to how your ego and emotions can concurrently run rampant. There must be a mechanism to stop it, and there is. It comes from the same place who touted, who touted, touted the warning first, my investments professor. And his words were this, quote, If you can control the first and get rid of the second, you will do well, end quote. Now, I don't buy this entirely. As I've said many times, and will continue to say even more, we cannot get rid of our emotions. It's impossible to do so. At least it wouldn't be worth it, so we definitely don't want to do the second part. The first part is entirely possible, though, and it will impact the second one. It won't necessarily get rid of your emotions, nor should it, but if your ego is controlled, it becomes easier to subvert the emotions that come with the inflated ego that proves detrimental to our well-being. You don't want to stifle your emotions, but you don't want to use them inappropriately either. There's a reason why I brought up Joe Pesci, and it's not just because he's phenomenal what he does. It's because in most of Joe Pesci's roles, and especially his most prominent ones, he has a tendency to get typecast into basically the same character over and over again. And the common thread? Ego and emotion. They are the downfall of almost all of his major characters in all of his major films. Let's stick with the Goodfellas example. Spoilers ahead. In one of the most memorable scenes in film history, and this film has a fuck ton of those, Tommy DeVito is hanging out with his mistress De Niro and Leota at Leota's character's bar. During their time together, an older made man in the hierarchies of the Italian mob, Billy Batts, corniest shit I know, walks in. Batts has recently been released from prison, and knows the crew that DeVito hangs out with well. But there's one issue. Batts, played by the late great Frank Vincent, knew DeVito when he was younger and looking to get a start in the mafia. To poke fun at DeVito, Batts belittles him by reminding him that he used to shine his shoes. In short, he bruises his ego by manipulating his emotions. DeVito, being emotionally insecure and unstable, gets riled up and attempts to go back, to, to go back at Batts until De Niro and Leota begin to defuse the situation. Just when all is believed to be settled down, Batts, still silently pissed, downs a shot of liquor and quips, quote, Now go home and get your fucking shine box, end quote. DeVito snaps, calls Bats a motherfucker, chucks a glass of alcohol into the wall of bottles, and has to be thrown out of the bar by De Niro and Leota, all while shouting at him, keep him here, keep him here. A few hours later, Bats is fully drunk and his guard is totally down. DeVito enters the bar with the aid of his crew and begins to beat an unsuspecting Bats to a pulp with the help of De Niro while Leota, who is the story's main character, watches on in horror. After they finish punching, kicking, and pistol-whipping Bats until he's a bloodied near-death mass of flesh on the floor... DeVito whips a stereotypical Italian tablecloth off a nearby table, wraps him up, and throws him in the trunk of his car. They then stop at DeVito's mother's for spaghetti, realize that Bats is still alive in the trunk, stab him with a butcher knife seven more times, and bury him in the woods. And it's all based on a true story, wholesome fun for the whole family, you see. 
But you might understandably be wondering what the point of all this was. People get whacked in mob movies in brutal fashion all the time, so what's the big deal about this one? Well, remember the whole, quote, like, Billy Bats is a made man in the mafia thing? Yeah, that's kind of a big deal. You don't fuck with those people. When you do, there are consequences. Like, you get whacked, your operation gets its knees blown out, and you end up screaming at your wife about why she should not have flushed a brick of cocaine down the toilet because that was the only source of income that you relied on to get you out of the fucked up situation you fucked yourself up in in the first place. DeVito's ego and emotions were the reason not for not just his downfall, but the downfall of everyone around him. I know you all, hopefully, aren't mobsters that go around stabbing people with your mother's kitchen utensils for shits, but the same concept still applies. Whenever they get out of control, bad shit happens. But if you're careful, it can be avoided. That's what comes next, unless someone tells you to go get your fucking shine box, then all bets are off. So, for the sake of argument and productive discussion, let's throw the, quote, get your fucking shine box scenario out the window. There are certain ways that we can fall into these traps, and they can all happen quite easily. In my estimation and my love of short lists, there is a three-pronged umbrella that we can shove most of our ego and emotion-based traps underneath. The first trap occurs when we confuse our ego with our self-esteem. The definition of the word self-esteem, according to the dictionary, is, quote, a confidence and satisfaction in oneself. When you look at these definitions, it is easy to get them confused. Even the dictionary says the two words are synonyms for one another. But like all symptoms, they are not perfectly correlated, and they need to be treated as such. The part that I believe trips people up is the, quote, confidence and satisfaction part of the definition. The ego is simply your perception of yourself. It quite literally is you. Your self-esteem is not you. It is a product of you. Things can get pretty screwed up when you confuse the product of something with your source of that something. Your self-esteem is the product of your ego, not the source. If we switch the product and the source, that's where the trap lies. Your confidence and satisfaction inherently become your sense of who you are, and you will do anything to enhance that due to the fact that you want to elevate your source of yourself, as we've talked about earlier. This can lead, of course, to you doing very rude, sketchy, and douchey things to elevate your ego. You probably see dozens of men at bars doing this every time you go out. Confidence and satisfaction are also emotions when you are talking about them in an, in an internal context. I've talked before about emotional overcompensation, and when you put emotions at the center of your sense of self and who you are, it's very easy for them to run rampant if left unchecked. We'll talk more about this in the next point, so I'll wait to expand on that until we get to that time. So, for example, let's think of a hypothetical person. I'm a male young professional, so let's call him YoPro Guy. YoPro Guy just graduated from college and he's taking a job at a market research firm in Austin, Texas. He's on top of the world and feeling his shit. This is his dream job. He's worked very hard to get it, and he wants to make the most out of it when he, get, when he begins to start working. YoPro Guy, however, becomes so indulged in his work that he lets it become his world. In other words, he transfers his confidence and satisfaction that he gets from his work as his primary goal. He becomes overconfident and undersatisfied due to his work completely absorbing the rest of his perception of himself. 
His ego and emotions have been painted with a big red X on their backs, just waiting for the inevitable hammer to fall and crush them. The product and the source have been switched. So the hammer falls. His boss flames him for incorrectly doing a project which he spent weeks on and tells him that those weeks were wasted and his product project cannot be done. Yopro guy is devastated, crushed. He contemplates snorting bath salts. Why did this happen? Because when your ego and emotions become who you are, they automatically become more critical and vulnerable, as we touched on earlier with the, quote, adversarial reactions spiel. When your self-esteem is the source of your sense of self, you become unintentionally addicted to ascending your self-esteem via the wrong metrics. You get tied up in things that, at the end of the day, really don't mean that much. The second trap occurs when we let our ego define our reality. Now, you may think that this sounds like the first one, but I'm going to take it in a different context. Remember the part earlier where I stated the claim about putting emotions at the center of your sense of self? Well, actually, that's not that far off from the truth. As humans, we think that our logic drives us to make decisions and do things, and that we don't act primarily off of emotion and impulse. But according to prominent psychological theory, that's not the case. Our emotions drive us to do these things, not our logic. When you think about it, it makes sense. Would any person who adopts a primarily logical approach start a business? Approach someone more confident or physically attractive than them? Go into a field of work where you initially can't make a lot of money to provide financial flexibility? Of course not. But we do them anyway. And for the exact reason that psychologists state above. Without emotion and impulse, we kill breakthrough, innovation, and progress. We would constantly stay stagnant. You see this all the time with cultures that are collective versus cultures that are individualistic. So, on that example, let's take the United States and China. The United States is heavily based on individualism, while China is based on collectivism. Either one can work, it's just a matter of how well they work. The United States values things like breakthrough, innovation, and progress more than China. That shows in things like our economic growth, GDP per capita, and individual freedoms and rights. They are advanced in the individual culture, not so much in the collective culture. So, if our emotions are the ones driving the car, where does logic sit? Well, probably either strapped to the hood or sitting in the backseat tied up in a sheet, like our, a lot like our friend Billy Batts. Our logic is only there to keep our emotions from crashing our emotional car. When our emotions get carried away, our logic temporarily, temporarily wrests control away from them and gets us back on course so we don't do permanent damage to ourselves. This is what keeps us from throwing all our money into entrepreneurial venture to mine for diamonds on the moon and whipping our dicks out in front of Margot Robbie like Jonah Hill and the Wolf of Wall Street. If our emotions drive the car, the car must be in control, at least relatively, in order for us to live fulfilling lives. The problem lies in which we don't simply throw logic in the back seat, but we throw him out of the car in total. We totally base all of our actions and opinions on our emotions, and therefore our ego. With only emotion and ego, um, e ugh, <laughs> with only ego and emotion to base our perceptions of ourselves on, that is what reality is defined by. The problem with this is, as we have stated, emotions can be irrational. They need logic to steer them back on course. You don't want to be a super emotional all the time. You'll be uber impulsive, irrational, and fucking annoying as hell. You're more likely to make bad decisions when you don't have logic as a constraint to knock you off your emotional high horse once in a while. Additionally, emotions are what people base their worlds on, but societies are based on the opposite side of the spectrum. Logic. The rule of law, the enforcement of justice, and traffic lights are proof of this. If you let emotions totally dominate your self-perception, 
You will act as the proverbial square peg trying to fit into the round hole of society. So let's take this into the context of Yo Pro Guy. After getting his project canned, Yo Pro Guy gets angry. He's fed up with his job. He doesn't want to be, quote, confined by the man anymore, whatever the fuck that means. As a middle finger to his old firm, he decides to start his own market research firm with a singular goal of death-starring his old firm by taking all of their business and clients. And while this may seem admirable, it's not very practical at all. This is one man against an army that has more capital, manpower, and resources that you have. Yo Pro Guy let his ego and emotions get the best of him, and it may not work out well from here. He, bought, he, brought a toothpick to, he brought a toothpick to a bazooka fight. Newsflash, if it can't work for Jon Snow, it's probably not going to work for you either. The third trap occurs when we don't have a clear endgame in mind. We believe that the combination of our ego and emotions are a means to an end, but we don't know what that end is. Therefore, we have no proper method of constraint against their use and inevitable misuse. You hear this a lot from people with a lot of ambition, goals, and who have Instagram bios set to the business setting with, quote, entrepreneur as their occupation. They have to, quote, level up, but they don't know what they're leveling up to and how they're going to get there. Why this leads to a trap is because of this sense of ambition can lead us into putting our emotionally charged ego at the forefront of ourselves and letting it run wild in order to seek ambition that we don't even know exists. We let it become bigger and bigger to stay on pace with our undescribed endgame, which inevitably is going to get larger the more we don't define it due to our ambition running as rampant as our ego and emotions. Yo Pro Guy had the same problem. It ties into trap number two. When he started his new entrepreneurial venture, he really didn't have a clear endgame. Yes, he wanted to steal his old firm's clients and do everything in his power to crush them. But is that really an endgame? Or a sustainable one? Or one that could even be achieved, especially off of impulse? The answer to all of those is, of course, no. His ego and emotions tricked him. When he didn't control his ego and let his emotions take control instead, he created a behemoth of a problem for himself when he thought he was actually helping himself. These traps are problems. Our exposure needs to be reduced in order to avoid them. And in order to do this, we must exercise discipline over our egos and emotions. In order to avoid traps, we must reduce our exposure to them. However, as we have seen, these traps are very easy to fall into. They prey on our lack of emotional discipline and strength, something that we all struggle to control. But there are steps that we can take and practices that can be implemented in order to instill some control. But before we get to those, I want to reiterate something that I stated earlier. Everyone has an ego. I don't care if you're rich or poor, famous or not, or whatever distinction you want to apply. Everyone has an ego. Psychology proves it. The ones who say that they don't are lying to themselves. So, like an addict, you must acknowledge that you have an ego and you occasionally have problems with restraining it. That will always allow you to be cognizant and vigilant of it. Having constructive and healthy perception of yourself is a good thing. It's what makes ego important. The first thing you must do when faced with a situation where your ego and emotions can run rampant is to remove yourself from the situation. Immediately. 
When you become so embroiled and consumed by a situation that you cannot make a rational judgment, you should immediately see a red flag being raised in your subconscious. Remember, these decisions cannot be made lightly if they're tripping the switches of your ego and emotions so forcefully. Detach from a situation and view it from an outside lens. Ask yourself some questions. What would you perceive you doing if you weren't you? What advice would you give someone about handling your reaction? Do your best to make it as impersonal of a decision as possible. Because your ego and emotions are inherently part of your personality, they can betray you if they think it's in your best interest. You must be able to exercise control, detach, and move forward when your head is cool. The second thing you must do when faced with one of these situations is to avoid your impulse of immediate reaction. This is not the same as avoiding a reaction. We are human beings with sensory perception. We react to stimuli. It's what we do. However, there is nothing within that context that states we need to react immediately. Daniel Kahneman is an Israeli economist, psychologist, and Nobel Prize winner for his work done in economic sciences. Kahneman studied for over 50 years of his life in researching the function of the human mind, which was boiled down and published in his memoir, Thinking Fast and Slow, in 2011. It has been lauded as potentially the greatest insight of the human mind ever put into the written word, and it's perhaps one of the most insightful books I've ever read. In his research, Kahneman divides the mind's mode of processing information into two parts, fast thinking and slow thinking. Fast thinking near automatic reaction and is, is near automatic reaction and is developed from experiential learning and rapid confrontation with the world. Slow thinking is involved when we question our fast thinking and aim to question our nearly automatic brain's sometimes skeptical methodology of process due to the fact that biases and other things can occur during that process. Immediate reaction is a function of fast thinking. Sometimes it's good and a lot of times it isn't especially when things are as touchy as your ego and emotions can skew your judgment. Do you know all the facts? Did you assess both sides of the situation instead of just analyzing your own? Did you ask someone else and get information from them? For the people that listen to this podcast consistently, one of the most common compliments, and maybe one of the one I'm most proud of, is that it's not based on knee-jerk and emotion. I actually just talked about someone with this today, actually. It was very, very, very kind of that person. I try to layer it with facts, counterintuitive arguments, and data behind all my ideas and thoughts. The problem that the people that tell me that this... Oh my god, what, I'm messing up a lot today. <laughs> the problem that the people that tell me this have with the other content of the same variety is that it's based on fluff. There isn't really anything logical backing their argument, and they don't take the time to ch properly challenge their own thoughts. They're fast thinkers. People, when properly attuned, can sniff out the shortcomings of fast thinking which is what you need to do in these type of situations and these type of scenarios dealing with your own hubris from ego and emotion. The third thing you must do when faced with this type of situation is ask people to trust how they perceive you. And the keyword here is, of course, trust. These people can't be yes-men, and they can't tell you how much you want, what you want to hear. They must be honest, brutally honest, so much so that they could potentially hurt your feelings, hint your ego and emotions. The reason this is so important is because it acts as an outside, nonpartisan accountability system when your own is in danger of failing. You should take ownership of everything in your world, but this is a good litmus test to make sure that sense of ownership stays in balance. Check in with your family and friends that you trust enough to be straight with you. This also is a two-way street. No one likes a mooch. Accountability, especially in relationships, is rare. You need to hold up your end of the deal. Ask them how they're doing and if there's anything you, you can help with, any advice you can give. Make sure you listen to what they're really trying to tell you, if anything at all. 
mutual accountability is highly underrated. The fourth thing you must do when faced with this type of situation, I, don't, I actually don't like how high these are getting, but I'm just going to keep going anyway, <laughs> if you're not doing it already, is to track yourself in all different aspects of your life. These do not have to be anything too cumbersome, but they don't have to be numerical-based, because a lot of life isn't numerical-based. But it is a necessity to keep your internal accountability to your ego and emotions in check. Fitness and meal tracking is pretty self-explanatory, but other aspects can be done too. A lot of people journal to track their daily or weekly process, and to talk to themselves about what they need to do in order to put themselves in a better position. Your interlocking systems of goals and habits that I talked about in post 14, which I don't even know what that was, so I apologize about that, is specifically designed to enforce this behavior. Oh, yes, your interlocking systems of goals and habits. I've never mentioned a specific post like that before in my life. So the one about solitary confinement about your routine. Go back and listen to this. Don't read this podcast. Don't, don't read this. Oh, my God. Don't listen to this podcast, don't read this blog, go back to it, listen to it, read it, learn something. This process of tracking will coordinate an internal system of accountability that you should use to make sure your ego and emotions aren't acting as agents that involuntarily cause your perception of yourself to get out of control. Are you being productive? Resting on your laurels? Doing too much? If you cannot use your system to help you answer these questions, get a new system. A good system should keep you informed on all facets of your progress. The fifth thing you must do when faced this type of situation is to go back to your models and your values. This should be the default option in most things, and especially things to do with your ego and emotions. This is because, if you pick them correctly, your models and values should not reflect an inflated ego and expanded hubris. Your models should be exemplifying behavior you want to copy, and your values should be the behavior itself. Ask yourself, are you practicing what you preach? If not, adjust and fix as needed. But there is another question you should ask as well. Are your models and values practicing what they preach? If not, you may have to find new models and values. You do base your trajectory of your life off of following them. They're important things to get right. To close, I want to reinforce that you can come back from these blunders. As I've said throughout this podcast, we all have these things, and we all try to get out of control, and we all get out of control, and it happens all the time. What we should do is not try to get rid of either. That would be counterintuitive and detrimental to our own overall well-beings. What we should do is implement practices and principles like the ones I stated above in order to create a system to filter out the bad and emphasize the good. Ego is healthy. Ego is good. But only when it is constructive to the well-being of you and others. When it's not, you're most likely being a jackass, and being a jackass is not good. So, start to notice these behaviors, acknowledge that you have them, and do your best to stop them. Oh, and while you're at it, go home and get your fucking shine box. Or, 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 get a copy of Value Economics, the Study of Identity, available this Tuesday, June 28th, 2022. Guys, Thank you for listening to the podcast this week. Thank you for just the the just mind-blowingly incredible amount of support that I've had over the last six weeks since I announced the book. It's been just, it, it truly has been just incredible. I really don't have many words to say what it means or do anything about it or anything like that. It's just kind of is, it's very, very wild that something like this is is happening to me and, you know, that people are actually seeming to enjoy it. But 
what would make me enjoy it a little more is that if you went out and you went to Amazon and you bought a copy. And I will say that there's going to be um, there's going to be some deals that happen uh, the week of release, only the week of release. So please don't pre-order. Buy it when I say to buy it, which is in two days on June 28th, 2022. Bioeconomics, Study of Identity, available on most all book retailers online, of course, in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. Anyway, thank you. Just want to say thank you for everything. So on that note, thanks for listening this week, guys. Hope you guys like the book. Go buy the book if you want to. I'll never tell you not to, but I'm kind of telling you to at least consider buying it. So thank you guys for everything. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?